Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Aline Holsworth is the head of behavioral science at Pattern Health in Durham, North Carolina. She's also a columnist for Behavioral Scientist and Forbes and has her own blog on Medium. She's a committed practitioner and researcher in behavioral science and is still the principal of Dan Ariely Center for Advanced Hindsight, where she is responsible for directing the strategy, operations, and communication for the Duke University Research Center. Aline, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Wow, thanks, Tim. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. We are excited to have you. Yeah, this is such a pleasure. So let's get started. Let's let's start with uh, your article about 16 ways to promote hand washing. And in it, you reference seven categories of solutions. And these are really, really different from anything most people have ever seen. You talk about reminders, pleasure, disgust, commitment, bundling, visual cues, virtue. Why those? <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Uh... Uh, there was a need to insert a little bit of fun into the conversation. Um, we don't generally think of hand washing as a fun thing. We think of it as uh, safety first and, uh, you know, practice good hygiene. And a lot of the messaging that you see out there, a lot of those communications are very dry and straightforward. And hey, <laughs> let's, you know, uh, crack down the, the hammer and get everyone to do this thing. Well, I think there's a lot of ways that you can actually uh, make healthy behaviors more amusing and fun to do. And behavioral science has a lot to say about that uh, in terms of how do we motivate people? How do we get them engaged? So one of the elements that might be fun, if you want to expand on it, is how you talk about disgust. Can you go into a little <laughs> I mean, bit about when you were when you explain disgust, explain to our listeners what you, what you're talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is actually uh, one of my favorite methods of getting people to hand wash it. <laughs> and I think this is what motivates me as well. Uh, I oh. find, uh, yeah, maybe this is getting too personal, but I find that I, I like really like to have clean hands. And the thing that gets me to wash my hands is I just feel dirty all the time and, you know, without going into, uh, into, some OCD tendencies. Uh, I think, you know, this feeling of disgust can be a really powerful motivator. And it goes back to this uh, behavioral immune system that we have. We're sort of um, biologically and evolutionarily designed to avoid things that can be dangerous, uh, foods that could be rotten and harmful, 
um, and, and, and in general uh, disease. So when we see people that look like they may be infected with disease, we uh, our automatic reaction is to avoid those things. And so if we can actually use that for good um, rather, uh, rather than for bad, and there are cases where this can backfire. One example is uh, we at the Center for Advanced Hindsight did a study with uh, a surgical resident at Duke, uh, Megan Turner, and uh, we were interested in how does this uh, emotion of disgust um, get people to be more or less likely to show up for um, their surgery appointments. And so it turns out people with a higher disgust sensitivity were actually less likely to go to their appointment. But, you know, they're, for, for the surgeon who's describing their procedure, it's very straightforward. You know, it's, she's totally desensitized to the procedure. But for the patient who's thinking about all the blood and gore and, you know, oh, this man. gruesome image of, of what they're going to go through, um, it's a very different story, and that can actually get them to not uh, not follow up on their appointment, which is clearly very bad. Um, but then on the flip side, you can use disgust for good. Where uh, so some of the examples that I I stumbled across were um, you know just covering your hands with something really gross and sticky that will motivate you to wash it off, and you could even sort of train yourself to do this by putting this gooey stuff on your hands and washing it off, and you know learning over time both uh, through uh, your intuition, but also seeing how long it takes and how long it uh, how long it takes to, to really feel uh, that coming off of your hands, um, because germs uh, in general and viruses in particular are not visible, so we don't have a feeling of being dirty by those germs. They're not salient. They're not you know you can't see them in in any way. So you really have to uh, sort of teach yourself. Um, how to feel bad about those things and then want to avoid them. Um, and then the other example was uh, Roger Dooley uh, created this intervention where he placed uh, little uh, germ stickers on door handles to remind people of all the germs that they would be encountering by touching those handles. Uh, and uh, I thought that was a, a, an extremely clever intervention. Yeah, Roger was on the show and, and he brings up some really interesting pieces <laughs> of great. that. But I love those stickers. They're these little germ stickers that you look and you're like, ooh, they're gross if you had to put yeah. your hand on that door. I know. I, I have yeah, such a visceral reaction to seeing those. Even when I look at the article, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I'm not touching any door handles ever. Uh, we, we also talked with Sam Tatum uh, from Ogilvy, and he was talking about an intervention that they did with a – a food processing plant. And again, to the point of this was well before this whole uh, the pandemic came about. Uh, and just the, the idea of making sure that the people at the food processing, processing plant were able to wash their hands well. And so they would put a stamp actually on their, on their hands. Because again, as you said, viruses and germs are invisible. And so yeah. They would actually put a stamp on the back of people's hands. They had to wash that. And before they could actually begin working, that stamp had to be gone. Um, so it was a real <laughs> visible way to make this invisible, you know, more salient to people. Well, I think that that's there's a larger point about uh, invisible um, behaviors or, or making things that are invisible visible uh, and, and vice versa in order to promote behavior change. Um, and I think that that in hand washing, it's very clear. Um, right, that, that germs are invisible and, and you can make them visible in different ways. I think there are other domains, and I know we're, we're focusing on the coronavirus, but uh, this just brings to mind 
um, other uh, projects that we've done, uh, including you know ways to make savings salient. For example, um, you you see a lot of conspicuous consumption, but you don't see what people are putting into their emergency uh, retirement savings or uh, you know any sort of um, savings account where where people are not spending money. Um, and so, you know, different ways of making those kinds of things more salient can actually be helpful to get people to feel like they've, uh, you know, done the right thing and get that acknowledgement that they deserve um, and also get that social aspect going as well so that people, um, you know, get recognition and feel like they've accomplished something when they've saved money, not just that they've put it in this invisible bank account and, uh, you know, like why? <laughs> Is the lack of salience a key part of what's making it difficult for people to keep, uh, you know, physical distancing? I, I would prefer to use physical distancing rather than social distancing. But, but if we have this behavioral immune system, why wouldn't we do that automatically? <laughs> and, well, because the the people that we're accustomed to interacting with um, are not usually sick, and we can't see that they're sick. You know, how how many days is it now that you can? Uh, be infected with the virus, or even you can, um, you know, I think it's, I wish I had the stats on the top of my head, and I'm reading so many news articles every day, but something like 30% of people are don't even show, um, don't even experience symptoms at all, they're completely asymptomatic. And so we're, we're interacting with them as if we would any other day. Um, with that said, I think that uh, that that the, um, the visibility of social distancing actually um, helps more than it hurts. Uh, whereas hand washing is mostly a private behavior. Um, if if the norm is to uh, you know participate in social distancing and self isolating, and then you're seen going out with friends, I think there's m much more of an opportunity for social shaming and for uh, for that uh, for that social element to um, actually encourage you to stay inside. So it's even a bigger opportunity than hand washing. Going back to that invisible versus visible piece, though, I think it's really interesting as you talked about the asymptomatic aspect of this disease where people are healthy, feel healthy, look healthy, but yet they're carrying the, the virus and able to spread that virus, but it's invisible. Uh, the difference that you see even walking in the grocery store, I know you haven't gone to a grocery store, but if you do go to a grocery store and you see somebody cough or sneeze, oh, the, yeah. the, the re reaction from people right now is this really, ooh, need to step back. Whereas before, you know, it might not have been six feet. It might have been two or three feet from them because you got to get, there's the cereal over there. I need, I need my corn puffs, right? And I need to get it and you're standing there. I'm not going to wait mm -hmm. you know, three minutes while you pick out your cereal. So I think there's a big aspect of why this is such a hard disease to control because of that invisible aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I think to your point, I think this really speaks to how much, how quickly in a situation like this, social norms can change. Mm. We this, we, we're seeing ourselves react very differently to the same kinds of stimuli. So someone coughing, like you said, normally it would be, you know, whatever, maybe they have a cold, you know, and you know, I, I might stay away from them, but I'm not horrified. Whereas now right. I see someone coughing and I'm, you know, right. trying, you know, running in the opposite direction, or I see 
you know, three people outside in a huddle. And I'm like, what are you doing? How dare you? You know, just like these reactions have evolved so quickly. And, uh, and as a behavioral scientist myself, I am amazed at how, uh, how quickly my, my reactions have changed to these same sorts of things. We had a conversation with Oregon DeMont uh, at the University of Pennsylvania a couple of days ago, where he talked about going to a store and having his list of things that he needed and was feeling very good about it. And toilet paper was not on the list. But when he got to the toilet paper aisle, he saw that it was almost almost empty. And, oh, he, yeah. and he thought, maybe I should get some toilet paper. <laughs> you have to take advantage of it. Exactly. Right. And, and uh, so we, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't just, you know, inoculate ourselves against all those natural DNA driven feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I am, uh, I'm proud to say that I have not purchased toilet paper since the run on toilet paper. <laughs> I already buy toilet paper in bulk, so I have plenty. Oh. <laughs> Always prepared for, for any sort of pandemic over here. <laughs> Little did you know before this, you were, you right? were already- a I'm in good shape. <laughs> what about hand sanitizer? What a, um, I'm not a huge hand sanitizer fan. I did start using it. Um, when I was still, so now it's been, you know, three weeks since I've been out in public, but, um, when I was out in public, I, I started using hand sanitizer. Okay. All right. I'm going to go back to, uh, the article. Cause there's one other aspect of, of the article that you talked about that I found really fascinating and it was around virtue. And you, you had this idea of create a role model narrative. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I just, I love a a role model narrative as just the way that it sounds and, and the, the imaging that it does. But and you people... like to be a role model too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to know what my role model should be. I need to know what the narrative that my role model should be. And so I just want to have you explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually interesting to think about this in terms of virtue, because I think virtue uh, to many people implies that there isn't this selfish element to it, that there isn't the ego involved. But I think it's very much about the self. It's about wanting to be seen as a good person, not just be a good person. So you see that when people's good deeds are visible, going back to that, you know, what's, <laughs> what's, what's transparent and what's not, um, people are much more likely to do something good than when that giving, you know, that donation or that good deed is actually going to go unnoticed. So there's definitely a strong element of I want to be seen as uh, as a good person. And in the case of the Super AMA, um, this was a, uh, this, a campaign about this uh, role mother, uh, sorry, role model mother who was, uh, you know, had children who all washed their hands with soap. Uh, I don't know if it was for 20 seconds, but <laughs> certainly uh, you know, they, were, they were correctly washing their hands. Uh, in this story. And uh, so mothers want to be like this role model mother and, you know, this nurturing, kind, uh, giving mother. And so uh, as a result, end up exhibiting this behavior at the, both themselves and, you know, uh, teaching their children how to as well. Um, and there's actually an interesting piece uh, of research. So it's incredible that the pace of research right now in behavioral science related to COVID-19 is just shocking to me. <laughs> I'm amazed that, that researchers are, are turning around uh, studies at this speed, but um, actually one of uh, a researcher who was previously at the Center for Advanced Hindsight, who's now doing his PhD at Yale, Vlad uh, Chitok, and, uh, and his co-authors, including Molly Crockett, and uh, I'll have to find the paper uh, uh, 
you know, for you so you can include it. But um, so they found that they framed uh, these moral messages to people um, in terms of uh, promoting, uh, I forget what the exact behaviors were, intentions to wash hands, avoiding social gatherings, self-isolating. So these big, um, big components of um, slowing the spread of the coronavirus. Um, and so then they asked people what kinds of framing of messages uh, they thought would be most effective. And so people are are very uh, big fans of the utilitarian message. This is the, you know, for the greatest good, how can we save the greatest number of people? But then they looked at uh, people's intentions, uh, their, their actual intentions based on the kind of framing that they received. And they found that two kinds of framings, deontological, so that it's this, uh, it's your duty, um, I just used air quotes as if people can see the air quotes. Um, I'm sure all of our listeners will get that, no problem. <laughs> it's very important that you imagine the air quotes. Yes. Uh, so these, these deontological uh, messages and these virtue-based messages, these arguments that, about how to be a, a good person, do this for your community, your friends and your family, these are the kinds of messages that are actually more compelling to people. Yeah, I think uh, one of the co-authors is Jim Everett, who we're trying to get on the show. So, awesome. um, so we'll hopefully have even a greater insight into that study uh, <laughs> in the upcoming week or so. Yeah. He can Keep actually our- tell you what they found. <laughs> <laughs> Keep our fingers crossed. That's um, great. Aline, you're a big music fan. We know <laughs> this about you. And I'm just wondering if, if you see a place for music in what we're going through right now or getting through this. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I have personally been making some uh, some pretty amazing playlists. Uh, <laughs> if I do say so myself, I'm happy to share. Congratulations! Um, <laughs> I really am. Yeah. I think they're great. Um, yeah, I th- and you know, I think a lot of this being cooped up inside. Uh, not that you can't go outside at all, right? It's important to go for a run or a walk around the block, and as long as you're keeping your distance. Um, but this social uh, isolation, or you know, as you were saying, physical distancing, um, to use music to really raise our spirits. Um, and I think maybe this this isn't true for a hundred percent of people. I've met people who are not as inspired by music as uh, as we are. But um, I think it really does have the potential to uh, <laughs> to boost our moods. Um, I find uh, I, I, so. I generally listen to the music that I really love um, when I'm not working. And then when I am working, I have this conditioned response to classical music, which is I turn it on and I start, I get, you know, into (laughs) extreme deep work focus. And this is something that I um, actually not intentionally. Yeah, I know. I taught myself during college where when I was writing a paper, you know, long, grueling papers, you know, I just had to sit for hours and hours and hours and crank it out. And I would always listen to classical music while I was doing this. And so now, uh, as I've been working, I, I don't know, I don't always listen to music while I'm working, but I actually have been now that my husband and I are working in the same house <laughs> all the time. Right? <laughs> He's even in the other room right now. And I was like, if you make a noise, one peep out of you while I'm in this interview. <laughs> so there are, you know, certain dynamics of, of uh, working with uh, someone in the same space that sometimes you need to kind of create your own space. And I think music you know, with headphones uh, can do a really good job of that. Why classical music? 
uh, so it can't be too, it can't be distracting at all. So certain kinds of classical music, like I can't listen to Beethoven, for example, like Beethoven is too distracting and like fun for me. Uh, and when I hear Beethoven, I'm just like, I'm going to rock out, but <laughs> love but, that. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there, so I can do Mozart. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to name <laughs> classical composers, but, um, yeah, I think the the more um, fluid the my background music is and peaceful, the more I can sort of uh, actually separate myself from it and focus on the thing at hand. Interesting. You know, uh, Melanie Brooks, who is now at Columbia University, is doing uh, some research on listening to music while you work, and so mm -hmm. we're we're kind of helping with her anecdotal fact gathering i guess and so it, we're going to share your comments with uh, with melanie oh, and her colleagues that's um, great so beyond hand washing how do you think behavioral science can inform or help us cope with what's going on right now yeah and i, I think a lot of it goes back to that uh dealing with being inside so mm -hmm. i think at this point four out of five americans or people back to that reading too much news and getting all my stats mixed up but four out of five people are uh, are now ordered to stay home and so that's a that's a very large percentage of the population and uh there's a lot of uh of joy that we get from interacting with other people that we're now it's we're now completely missing and so you know there's a lot of things that we uh, or, or I at least uh, already did for work, such as having video conferences with uh, with coworkers. So, so like continuing to do that uh, is very good. Uh, it, it'll still be hard because you don't have those sort of accidental conversations, what you call the the water cooler conversations, where you just bump into someone and strike up a conversation and ask them how they are. Everything is a little more scheduled uh, when you have to go through the effort to set up a, a video call. However, there are ways that you can uh, make it easier to schedule those sorts of things. So at the Center for Advanced Hindsight, we have a daily drop-in where it's just a uh, an open video chat where you can pop in for half an hour every day and there will be some people there and you can say hi it's it's purely social um virtual happy hours are popping up everywhere um, both pattern health and the center for advanced hindsight are doing that and there are all sorts of other recommendations from behavioral science in general in terms of well-being so outside of just replacing that social element there are things we can do like exercise so i went on a, a bike ride this past weekend and it was like the best thing i've done in, <laughs> in weeks i was just like oh my gosh i have to I have to bike right every day. So it's, it's these highs that we can get from, uh, from physical activity are, are going to be really important now. And I think it's tempting to kind of crawl up into a ball and uh, retreat into your cave of sadness, but, um, <laughs> but you really have to get out and uh, at least exercise in your house, you know, do some jumping jacks every day, figure out how to incorporate it into your routine. And then, you know, thinking about the things that you're grateful for is very helpful. Savoring. One thing that I've done uh, on, a, on a daily basis now is just remember, I'm not infected with COVID-19. Uh, I have uh, a house 
with multiple rooms where I can escape my husband. <laughs> I have a wonderful husband. He's super supportive. Uh, we have enough food and toilet paper to last us for another month. Yeah. Um, we have a yard outside. Like there are so many things that yeah, I can work from home. I still have my job. Like it's an, I'm in a very, very good situation. And remembering those things I think is very helpful. And even if you don't have all of those things, you will have you know, family that cares about you, friends that you can uh, still connect with. There are always things to be grateful for, even in the worst of times. And I think that can be really helpful to find those things. I love that. What of those new habits that you're experiencing today do you think are going to last? So I think the move to digital is hopefully here to stay. Um, and I say that also <laughs> partially as a, a, you know, someone working for a digital health uh, platform <laughs> where, <laughs> where our entire business relies on things going digital, right? But so what we do at Pattern Health is we create these digital care programs for people to, you know, create remote care um, and actually research as well. Um, we do a lot of research with people. And so now that in-person contact is ill-advised, you know, there's no in-person human subjects research happening at all. Uh, as much care is being taken remotely as possible. I think health systems are starting to realize, oh, like they're, you know, this is, this is a good thing that we can do, not, not just now, but actually we can, this is more efficient in general. And yeah, there are cases where you're going to want in-person interaction, but for the care that you can take offline, that just makes a lot of sense to do that. Yeah, my son, who's 14, has had already had a orthodontist appointment over FaceTime, and wow. he is having a dermatologist appointment over FaceTime coming up in, in, in the future. And they're, you know, they're experimenting, they're, they're learning on it. But I think there are some of those pieces where you don't have to be in person. You can do things virtually given today's technology, which in the long run, probably saves us time. We don't have to drive our 14-year-old, you know, 20 minutes to the appointment. We don't have to get in a car, use all that energy to do it. And it's just as effective and it's more effective for probably the, the practitioners as well. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's <laughs> it's so, such a naturally good idea. Um, and I think that this you know, terrible situation has been something, if there's any silver lining, it's been a forcing function to actually get some of these uh, better processes into place um, in terms of striking down some of the bureaucratic barriers that were there before um, and even aligning incentive systems. So CMS, the Centers for uh, Medicare and, and Medicaid, um, weren't reimbursing telehealth. <laughs> amazingly. Yeah. Um, so now like that has changed. Uh, a lot of doors have opened in terms of what's possible and, uh, and you know, what's incentivized. So yeah, with that hopefully we'll keep going in the right direction. Yeah. It's interesting that the dermatology appointment for my son, uh, we started to try to plan it right before this was happening, you know, right before the kind of real shutdown happened. Mm -hmm. And, and then we said, you know what, we're just not going to take them in. It's not something that's really required. So we can just wait this out and do it. Um, and they said, well, what about this this video thing? And we said, sure, great. And then they came back to us and said, oh, wait, we can't do that because of all these different incentives. And he's oh, not wow. a pre he's not an existing patient, so we can't do it. And they called us back two weeks yep. later now and said, hey, we have an opportunity. Do you still want to do that? Uh, so go. they're they're 
and you know changing and making adjustments on the fly given the situation so to your point i think it's forced some changes in how we're thinking about things and the processes that are going into it and that can be in the long run i think can be very valuable as we think about that so i was just really happy as a recipient of a televisit that it was scheduled for 115 on a Wednesday just last week. And guess what? My doctor called me at 115. I, I, <laughs> I didn't have to wait. It was that has uh, never happened. That never. It was pretty <laughs> That's great. great. And she said yeah. she was so happy to, you know, that she was running more on schedule with uh with doing it over the phone. So, oh, so- absolutely. And you know what? My mom is a physician, and when uh, when she was in quarantine because we were traveling in Switzerland uh, before the travel ban, she returned home and couldn't go back to work for two weeks. Now to have healthcare workers not working for two weeks—that's a big deal in a global pandemic. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. fortunately, she was able to see patients, uh, you know, through her video camera, and it's a wonderful thing. She wouldn't have been able to see those patients at all. Yeah, you have to have to wonder what this would have been like even 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) It would have been a very different response, very different way of coping and not as well. I, I, I really do believe that technology, as much as we chastise and, you know, hate some of it, uh, has really been, a really beneficial aspect. Oh, yeah. And it's all about how you use it, right? Um, but to your point, um, <laughs> definitely when we look at the research on self-isolation and the effects of quarantine and these sorts of things, almost all of that research, not all, but much of that research is done before the age of video and before the age of smartphones. And so when I think about all of the uh, avenues for interacting with other people that we have now and try to compare that, it just seems like you can't really generalize many of those findings. It's it's really, we're, we're venturing into new territory here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Aline, what do you think the big insights that that you've taken away from how this pandemic has played out over the past few months in the way that both maybe you personally, but society or your community that you surrounds you have interpreted, responded to it and where you think it's going. What, what are some of the insights that you've taken away? Hmm. <laughs> Big question. Well, I apologize. Question. I'll just tell you. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is, uh, I am so grateful for healthcare workers and uh, people who are keeping our supply chains up, all of the truly essential workers in this world. Um, I've come to realize that I am not even close to being one of those people. I am completely, uh, completely dispensable. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. (laughs) Well, tell us about that. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, Generally, I would I would prefer to be indispensable, but I also feel like I really have it good just uh, doing my part, sitting in my house and uh, you know, taking a taking a, an interview and writing some interesting things. I think I have a uh, I'm very privileged is what I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm feeling grateful for, and all the people who are doing the actual work. I feel like 
they're really the superstars here. That is beautiful. That is really beautifully said. And it is good to be reminded of that. Yeah. This has been really fantastic. Yeah. Again, the insights that you brought, you may think that you're into, you're, you're maybe, you know, dispensable, but really some of the insights that you brought, the knowledge that you're bringing to the world, helping people is valuable and maybe not indispensable, but it is very, very, very valuable at this point in time. So thank you for that. And thank you for, for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some of the concepts and ideas that were inspired by our conversation with Aline. Tim, what do you think? How about the behavioral immune system? What, a what cool about concept. the behavioral immune I system? Just, I so dig that as a concept. I really just like, <laughs> oh man, that is just so cool because evolutionarily, we've got it. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've had to have it in order to survive. Yeah. It's not the body's immune system. It's our brain's immune system about how we approach things. And it's evolutionary aspect that we have this sense of disgust when we see things uh, such as dirty, grimy things, you know, people who look sick. And we have this disgust emotion that pushes us away from those, helping keeping us safe. That's. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I remember as a child buying fruit in a grocery store and not paying too much attention to the beauty of the fruit, right? But at the time, that red delicious apples were the primary delivered uh, delivery in in apples because they were beautiful because they could be harvested and manufactured, so to speak, in really beautiful form. And so we weren't looking at it and going, oh, this isn't so good. We'd pretty much take anything. Today, I feel like there's a really high demand for really beautiful looking fruit and vegetables. But that disgust, I think, is might even be amplified in our in our world today. And I'm not just talking about the last six weeks. I'm talking about the last six years where all the fruit and vegetables that I'm bringing home are gorgeous. Like well, they're we, just about perfect. We talked with Jill Wheeler about that, right? And in this idea that, wow, just having a little bit of brown spot on your banana or various different other aspects in your fruit and vegetables doesn't mean that it's bad, but right. we perceive that because we look at this beautiful fruit next to it and it's a comparison to, and, to that. And our behavioral immune system says, wait a minute, maybe that brown spot on the banana is going to be bad. Right. Yeah. So I think there's some really interesting pieces of that. And I am wondering, given this situation, so I know for myself, I was never one to really be a germaphobic. If something fell on the floor, I'd pick it up. I'd usually eat it, you know, unless it was gross, gross. Um, but today, I don't know if I would do that. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be outside looking at uh, picking up something off of the ground, a dime or a quarter or something. And I, I'm now more sensitive to that. It's like, ooh, I might have germs on it. Somebody might have had coronavirus. And now I, if I pick that up, it, it might be something. So do you think we're getting more sensitive to these disgust signals than we were before. I think at, at certain point you get desensitized to some of this. And I, I think we're getting more sensitive to them. 
Right. And I don't know how long it will last, but I do think that we are highly sensitized to it right now because I'm feeling it. We I love our conversation with Rod Wagner when he went through the ritual that he goes through getting <laughs> into the grocery store, coming out of the grocery store, getting into his car. Uh, we had food delivered last night and we I used tongs to keep the bag open, the delivery bag to get the food out. And then we, we looked at each other with a, a question mark of, do we need to wash the packaging that the food is in? Uh, the, the the aluminum foil that the non bread is, is wrapped <laughs> in before we eat it. Uh, so I think there's definitely a higher level of sensitivity. By my, my, but the trouble is it's invisible. You know, yes. The, the the big big challenge with this is that our behavioral immune system doesn't have anything to to react to. Right, and I think that's one of the big points that Aline brought up, right, is this invisibility factor that goes into this crisis. You know, the coronavirus is asymptomatic. We can have it, we can be spreading it, and we don't even know it. Viruses themselves are, you can't see them. You can't even see them with a, with a microscope. You need an electron microscope, if my knowledge on that is correct. So, <laughs> okay. being able to, to understand what this is. And again, our, our behavioral immune system won't react if it doesn't have anything to react to. So how do right. we take these invisible virus, this invisible virus and make it visible? I think that's the big key to this, because I think if we were able to do that, if we could see the virus and somebody coughed and had it, and it was these little green things, like the little green, you know, icons that they have out there and they're floating through the air, Right, You know, like maybe somebody smoking and, and blowing a puff of smoke and you can see that smoke going out there. I think we would be a much better situation because a lot of people would be avoiding this a lot more than maybe what we, we're doing right now. Maybe we need more uh, ugly green stickers that Roger Dooley is using and put them everywhere <laughs> around. The but, little uh, virus stickers, yes. You know, also humans have a long history of magical thinking when it comes to things that we can't see. When things that are not evident or not scientifically um, explainable, we have a long history of making shit up. <laughs> and so I think that this could this could lend itself to all kinds of magical thinking and, dare I say, conspiracy theories. Uh, you could definitely say that. I mean, we have a long history of making shit up about things that we can see and can know <laughs> well, it's even more so on, on this idea of the news. invisible <laughs> fake news, <laughs> but you going back to this invisible aspect, right? It was interesting how Aline was talking, you know, hand-washing is often a solitary thing where social distancing is maybe more of a visible thing. So even our response to this, some things are more visible than others. And will those more visible aspects drive a bigger behavior change? Because we can have this social shaming aspect, social elements aspect, whereas a society, we start to change the norms around that. And so maybe that, that is another aspect of this. Is if we go back to our conversation with Oregon Demont on mm -hmm. the social norms that he experienced when seeing the toilet paper aisle almost empty, is it possible that we might adapt more to washing our hands if soap aisles and, of course, hand cleansers, you know, hand sanitizers and those kinds of things are empty? Do you think more people might actually engage in washing their hands or are they just going to buy it and take it home and let it sit on the shelf? 
I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a scarcity aspect that then drives home the need for that. That could very well be. I don't know anything about that. Um, you know, it it is interesting how those social norms are driven by some of that vis- visual yeah. aspect, right? Very visual, yeah. So the the aspect of you know toilet paper being not on the shelf helps drive this social norm that oh we must get social or toilet paper. I might be needing toilet paper if everybody else is buying toilet paper. Maybe I should have a lot of extra on hand as well. So it gets into, uh, you know, it is uh, not a normative norm. It's a descriptive norm, as as Eugen was talking about. So this idea of hand soap being gone may be a descriptive norm saying, wow, everybody must be washing their hands. Therefore, maybe I ought to be washing my hands. So that could very well be. It's just interesting. It's interesting how quickly social norms have changed in this crisis because I, I had the false belief before this that social norms were typically something that took a long time to change and you know I, I sh- that was pretty naive of me if I actually look back and go wow just thinking from 2016 and the change in in politics but then just the tone of things around uh, maybe some racial and other aspects that are going on and how quickly it became more readily available than that. That's the wrong word. Uh, more um, people were more likely to, to say racist things in public and on social media than they had maybe even just the year before. It was more generally accepted. More generally. It, it has become more generally accepted because of some tone and, and messaging from the top. And so I think, you know, this idea that social norms are consistent throughout a long period is I, I'm readjusting my thoughts on that. It is interesting. And this is a rabbit hole that I don't think I can support, but I'm just curious about how long does it take to make a social norm? This is a question that I've been curious about when, with the analogies around World War II, and I think about the scarcity that that the people who were in their early 20s or 30s in the during World War II grew up during the American Depression and the Global Depression. And so they had a, a sense of scarcity that was pretty well tuned. And then you come through the war era and you've got four or five, six, seven years of very dedicated uh, life because of scarcity. They lived their entire lives to a large degree, that, that uh, generation, in a, with a sense of scarcity. My question is, will the few weeks or months that we're going through with with COVID-19, will that be long enough to create a sense of new social norms? Will it, yeah. is, it is it long enough? Um, but we've got to get a social scientist back on to talk about that. Yeah, I think that would be a, a great conversation to have because yeah. it is interesting. I mean, do those social norms take a long time to, to have them be sticky? How long do they need to to be in place in order for them to be sticky? Because to your point, you know, my my parents grew up through the depression, and my father fought in World War II, and my mama mm-hmm. obviously was around during then. And I will, you know, to this day, I remember my mom, you know, you reusing the tinfoil that we had, right? I mean, you you right. reuse that multiple times. If you went to a restaurant and there were crackers on the table, those went into her purse. 
those, those are lifelong we, habits. Those are lifelong habits. We had more than enough. I mean, we were we were solidly middle class growing up. We did not need to have those extra crackers <laughs> from the restaurant go into my mom's purse. And it was embarrassing for me as as a, a child, you know, as a teenager and particularly growing up and, and having that. But it was ingrained in in how my mom viewed the world. To your point, there was a scarcity aspect that was ingrained that you don't waste things that you, these right. are things and it wasn't about saving the environment it was all of it from an economic background where she didn't have these things and that's what you did in order to survive can we talk a little bit about music you would always want to talk about music so of course <laughs> i loved how aileen just so quickly jumped on this bandwagon that uh, music can really help us maintain our emotions well, it can, right? And so no. you need to be purposeful. And we have her playlist, right? We have her playlist that we're put in the in the show in the notes. notes. You bet. So you bet yes, uh, people need that uplifting dance music kind of thing. You know, sometimes <laughs> I I need my heavy metal industrial. You know, just to, to get my anger out. And sometimes you just might even need some of those sad folk songs that yeah. that uh, you know just to. To have that good feeling of, hey, it's all right, there's there's sadness in here, but we'll get through it. Well, and as Elton John said, a sad song can say so much, <laughs> you know, just to, just to bring that in. There and, you go. And, and as my daughter would say, why, wh when I asked her, why does she listen to a lot of sad music? She says, because I know that there's people out there that are worse off than me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually, I've said that about some of the, the really, you know, industrial music where people are just really angry and I'm going, Oh, why do I listen to this? And it's like, cause their world is a lot more <laughs> effed up than my world could ever be. And it just, it's reassuring to a point. I mean, I, you know, I go broke and, you know, lose my house. It's still not going to be as bad as theirs is. Cause uh -oh. oh my God. Yeah. So what else did you want to cover Kurt? Uh, you know, I think uh, just a couple things. She brought up some really good tips for people who are staying home and what oh, we can yeah. do. Yeah. You know, the daily drop-in she and her her company are doing, I thought was really interesting. Obviously, the vir virtual happy hours we've talked about, exercise, music, gratitude, that gratitude at the end of the day, I thought was really interesting. And I love the quote that don't curl up in a ball and retreat into your cave of sadness. You yeah, know? It's just, yeah. that was very vivid for me. And I'm going, yeah, too many people think that would be a response that seems, you know, what the only thing I can do is curl up into this ball of sadness in this cave of sadness. And but, but you don't have to. You don't have to. And that's not what we should be doing. So mm -hmm. I was also glad to hear about that gratitude stuff because it's come up a couple of times in other conversations and it's something that my wife and I are practicing on a, on a daily basis. End of the day, we just, just a quick question. What are you grateful for today? And oftentimes lead to, to, to interesting conversation. And it's just really fun to have that. It's a, it's a good thing to do. So highly recommended. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm 
at T. Houlihan, and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you, and this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. 